It's an all-new season of ACDC Beyond the Thunder. Are you ready? With your host, Kurt Squires, with Greg Ferguson and Eric Deal. For those about to talk, we salute you. Yes, it is, my friends. It's another edition of ACDC Beyond the Thunder, the podcast with the biggest balls of all. We're warming things up a bit with today's episode featuring a beachside interview with a critically acclaimed Canadian singer, songwriter, guitarist, violinist, Kathleen Edwards, who Rolling Stone declared one of the year's most promising new acts when she first entered the music scene. And believe us, folks, to quote Bon Scott, She's got balls. She's appeared on Letterman, Austin City Limits, NPR's Tiny Desk Concert, and many a festival, including Bonnaroo, and then eventually sharing the bill with Akadaka on the Toronto Rocks concert stage, hosted by the Rolling Stones. But we first fell smitten with Kathleen Edwards after hearing her reimagined version of ACDC's highest charting single of all time in the U.S., Money Talks. Welcome back. I'm your faithful host, Kurt Squires, serving up well-known fans who've been influenced by this Hall of Fame band known as ACDC. Eric Kielb is behind the soundboard over there. Hi, Eric. And joining me is the man who actually mic'd up and filmed this lovely lady, Mr. Greg Ferguson. Greg, what's up? Hello, hello, hello. Hey, guys. Hey, Eric. Hey, Kurt. Good to be back in the booth with you guys and uh, for another episode of Beyond the Thunder. Likewise. Greg, what's your memory from this truly unique interview? I really don't remember how we ended up tracking down Kathleen. At the time, I know we were just working on a documentary and kind of wherever we were, anytime we would always like look up people who were in town with us and and reach out and try to possibly get an interview with them. So I think our our paths crossed in... um, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It was yes. summer. I yes. do remember that. I remember arriving, and we, I think we met at a restaurant. We had lunch with the band and Kathleen. Right. The restaurant was right next to the to the beach, so we just kind of went up on this bluff above the beach, set up our interview there. Yeah. And if you listen, if you listen close enough, you can kind of hear the waves in the background. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, at first I was I was worried that this isn't really the right place to do this type of interview, but honestly, Kathleen's so chill and so relaxed. This place totally set the tone for this interview, which was perfect. It was it was perfect because not only did we not have many female ACDC fans on our show at yeah, the true. time, but also um, we didn't have many interviews outside. Yeah, you know? yeah let alone at the beach in um, Cape Cod. And, and it, I believe it was my first trip to P-Town. I had no idea what P-Town <laughs> yes, was. Yes, I did take you all the way to the end of the Cape there to P-Town. Uh, no real warning of what to expect. And that was pretty pretty interesting and pretty fun. Yes, a very friendly and fiery redheaded lady who had a great sense of humor, very talented, and who was more than glad to open up and share her love and affection for ACDC, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, when you think about Kathleen Edwards and her music, you might not realize there's a direct relation to ACDC. But, you know, with talking with her, we found out a lot of her influencers were rockers, you know, from ACDC all the way to Zeppelin. Being a songwriter, it was really interesting to hear her take on ACDC and, and why their music's had so much success and why their songs are so popular. 
Um, and as a singer, it was really cool to hear her take on Brian's voice and how much respect she has for his range and, and, and his singing and how hard it is. I mean, she compared Brian's singing to opera. I know. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, a few years after we did this interview with Kathleen, she was just finishing up a tour and uh, she got home and basically hit the reset button. She packed up her guitars. She stopped singing, stopped writing music, and she opened a coffee shop. And it was basically time for her to kind of get things back in perspective and maybe work on a few demons in her closet. And it's no secret that she had some struggles with anxiety and depression. So I think it was a good time for her to kind of work through those. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, and eight years later, she comes out with a new album, which is awesome. So That's cool. Yeah, 2020, she came out with Total Freedom, and she's currently out on tour right now. Sweet. Well, I hope we can catch her on tour because um, she was just so, such a fun personality. Okay, Greg, time to put on the suntan lotion, get a little sand in our toes, go back to the beach for our ACDC Beyond the Thunder interview with Kathleen Edwards. Let's do this. Kathleen, welcome. Oh, thanks. Uh, before we jump in and talk ACDC, I wanted to discuss your past. I read where your father was a diplomat, a former deputy minister of foreign affairs, which which is fascinating because that meant your family had to move from Ottawa to places like Korea and Switzerland. So while you're traipsing around the world and picking up musical instruments along the way, did these particular locations influence your musical roots growing up? Because you know, you're playing local pubs and st such like that? Um, no, the, living overseas didn't influence me in terms of what was being played. Although, to be fair, in, in Switzerland, I started playing classical violin. Like, that's where I started taking lessons. And so in that sense, there was an influence. But musically, I would say living overseas, what it does, it, it isolates you. Mm -hmm. And so you really latch on to something that you identify with in a way that I think is above and beyond you know, sort of just having like, you know, the pop culture, sort of the, everything on the periphery, just being being present in your life. You had to actually go out and seek it and you had to sort of latch onto it for it to be available to you when you're living in Korea or Switzerland or wherever. Yeah, that's cool. And did you learn to play the guitar the same time as you learned violin? Oh, violin, yeah. I, violin was first when I was about five, six. And then I studied till I was until I was in the end of high school. And important to note that ACDC wasn't your first true love either. Uh, it was more like folk rock artists that you had heard your older brother play, right? Like Neil Young and Tom Petty and Bob Dylan. Yeah, and it wasn't actually, Dylan was the one that I remember the least. Okay. My brother played a lot of, Neil Young was sort of the big, the big musical influence in my house, you know, and then my brother sort of, he was the one who got me my first Tom Petty CD. And, you know, Tom Petty and Neil are sort of, they're sort of tied for first. Yeah, nice, nice. I have a hard time picking one or the other, but they're, I love them for different reasons. And, and, to, and my brother was responsible for that influence in my life. Otherwise, I'd probably still be listening to Irene Cara. <laughs> what a feeling. Wow, Irene Cara from Flashdance. Talk about a flashback from the 80s. It's funny, when Michael Jackson died, the first person I called was my brother because when we were kids, my brother was Michael Jackson and I was Irene Cara because that, you know, those, those were the two big pop stars when we were, when I, w I guess I would have been six or seven, yeah. Thriller came out and 
my brother was from nine or ten and those were the you know two big female male female pop stars oh yeah and that was the era to sell albums too because you, you talk about i mean does it blow your mind that michael jackson's thriller from the 1980s is the number one best-selling album of all time and another 80s album acdc's back in black is number two yeah i mean i get why thriller's number one and why ACDC's number two. I'm thrilled that ACDC's in the top five. And, you know, Back in Black, I'm, I'm sure I, I've bought five copies of that record. Because, you know, you play it so much and then it gets scratched. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to just replace it. And I'm, I'm not a downloader, so, you know, I'm uptight, so I buy the records. So I've contributed to the top the top five all-time album sales of Back in Black. I know. I, I'm very guilty of buying way too many copies of that album. And I have to assume that Germany makes up a lot of those sales. Some of the most rabid ACDC fans that we've ever met on the planet. There's so many Germans in the world. Who knew? It's true. It's true. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah. Germans, number one. Gotta be. Followed closely second by David Hasselhoff. Yes. I And third, Scorpions. <laughs> Oh, well played. Yes. Okay, let's play a little game, Kathleen. Describe to our listeners the feeling one might get the first time that they hear ACDC. Mm. What might their music cause one to do? I'm sure that this is a common description of what ACDC does to you, but ACDC makes you want to drive fast. Yeah. Which is great for the municipalities of North America who find people and make you know, like City Hall has a Renault next year because of ACDC speeding tickets. Like, <laughs> ACDC makes you want to drive fast. And that's, that's... I like that. That is the quintessential feeling you get when you listen to a band like ACDC. That's too funny. I actually saw a print ad at one time that ranked the top five bands to get speeding tickets to. Air Supply was at, like, 1%. And ACDC was ranked at the top with 91%. So it sounds like you're correct in that assumption. You feel uninhibited. You, you, you don't care. You know, you don't care if you, if, you, if you drive faster than you usually do. You don't care if you have a couple extra shooters at night. Not, not you know, and driving, but uh, yes. Of course not, no. But um, let me ask you this. ACDC Beyond the Thunder unveils how this one band has influenced so many individuals who've gone on to do some pretty amazing things with their lives, including yourself, but also famous actors and authors and athletes. And since you sang at the National Hockey League All-Star Game, yeah. and you're Canadian, I assume you are a hockey fan. <laughs> All uh, Canadians are naturally connected to hockey. <laughs> but, but I'm just checking. You are, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. So you've experienced this firsthand. Why is ACDC so synonymous with kicking things up a notch when it comes to arenas and stadiums and whatnot. Because ACDC's like cocaine in, in, in a musical format. It makes you feel good. It's like n instant serotonin. You naturally, something happens in your stomach and there's the kick drum. And then there's like, you know, the bass supporting the kick drum. And then there's just the groove, you know. That's that's it, man. That's it. That's like instant serotonin. Yeah. You could do this, or you can just like press play and you get the same thing. Not that I know, <laughs> uh. but yes, same thing, right? And I think that's 
when you're when you're if you have an arena full of people mm -hmm. you want to make them feel good about buying a ticket you want to make them feel good for being there right macy dc man yeah well as a fellow musician who's a singer songwriter and who can play multiple instruments Describe what ACDC does that no other band can replicate. I mean, what makes ACDC so special that not just to fans, but also their peers as well? I think uh, they are the masters of, of pocket. Absolutely. And, and sort of, which is sort of a term that, that a lot of bass players and drummers would use, mm -hmm. where when you sit in a pocket, that means whatever whatever groove you're playing it feels good and it's the right tempo and it's and it and it sits where you don't have to think about it, it just it just kind of comes and they are the masters of pocket Pocket is a hit song. So if you can come up with a good pocket, that's that's sort of like the X factor in music. And how they've been able to do it over and over and over is sort of just, it, it is the X factor because it's just a combination of these people who know how to recreate that feeling over and over again. Right, right. So, well, if ACDC has this seemingly simple and successful secret recipe, then is that something that you think other musicians try to replicate, even a singer-songwriter like yourself? Or do you think that storytelling is more important than the riff? I, I, you know, I don't know if I know how to answer. I don't know how other people approach that. I think, um, I think songwriters are different in the sense that they want a great song, and groove might come second. You know, for them, content is usually maybe a bit, takes priority over over the pocket or over the over the um over the groove of it of it but yeah it, and what about like a record producer you know there are, i think record producers sort of are people who are, might be a little bit more in tune with the idea of what acdc has done and it's not about replicating their idea it's about taking them as an example and going now that's a pocket and it's great sounds it's great production. I mean, and then it's great players. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So let's get down to it. The reason why we tracked you down, Kathleen, here in Cape Cod, uh, is because back in the early aughts, the, the early 2000s, I moonlighted as a DJ, as the ACDC guy on 102.9 WBLM. And there was a fellow jock by the name of Charlie Jacobson. And he handed me a live track of you covering ACDC's Money Talks. Totally caught me by surprise. Was it because it was a female alt-country singer-songwriter? Absolutely. But I was also caught off guard 
by your selection and then your arrangement of that particular song. With ACDC's massive catalog to choose from, why did you choose Money Talks? I'm curious. Okay, so everyone asked me why Money Talks. I, <laughs> Sorry. I, I like Money Talks because it was sort of a, it was like a, it was like, oh, hi. It was like a, <laughs> I like Money Talks because it was a B hit. It wasn't Hell's Bells. It wasn't Trick Me All Night Long. And Yeah, very true. Very true. I just always liked the idea that uh, I like covering songs that are a little less conventional. Like I would never get up on stage and do Hell's Bells because I don't have a, you know, a Chinese symbol on stage. <laughs> I may one day, but I don't now. Um, you got to save up for that prop for sure. And Money Talks was just an easy one. And I liked the lyrics and it was all about, you know, manipulative women. And, you know, it's like every Rolling Stone song that's ever been written. But I, <laughs> I like the idea that it's sort of, it's a little less conventional than sort of what people think of ACDC as. You know, they, the top five would be this, 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 and this, and Money Talks probably wouldn't be in it. No. So I like it, and, I, and, and the best thing about a cover song, when you play a cover song, is that you start the song off, and I play it a little, you know, I don't come out, I don't come out with like the full band. I start on electric playing, you know, D, tailored suits, show for cars. And people are like, I don't know, I don't know if I know the song. It's, she says it's a cover song, but I'm not sure. And then, you know, come on, come on, love me for the money. Come on, come on. And uh, that's when people start doing this. You know, you see a little bit more of this going on in the crowd. And then by the end of the chorus, people are like, Maybe a little known fact about that song, uh, after going through like 200 cassette tapes, Money Talks was a riff that Angus brought to brother Malcolm, who quickly got his approval on this rather pop-friendly tune from ACDC about money, greed, lust, and, you know, all the other good things that make a hit song. But actually, it became ACDC's highest-ranked U.S. single to date, believe it or not, one that uh, you turned into a rather cool cover tune. Um, and now you can truthfully say that you've opened for ACDC, right, Kathleen? I didn't really open for ACDC, but I was one of several artists on a bill in Toronto a few years back. I was there. For the, oh, you were there at, at the SARS concert? Yes, and I actually saw you. I, you know, it's funny because I thought I saw you too. Um, <laughs> you you were like, I looked at 490,000 faces and you were 400. Yeah, half a million people. 491, I don't know. Oh yeah. man, I had never been so freaked out in my life around so many people. It's like 500,000 fans and you couldn't move. Uh, but once the all-too-polite Canadian crowd settled in, all was good. Not Well, not so much for Justin Timberlake, who was pelted with water bottles when he came out on stage. But what a bill. You had Jeff Healy, Flaming Lips, The Guess Who, Rush, uh, of course, you, and 
of all of these rock gods, who did who did you get to meet? We did a photo shoot at the end of uh, of all the artists, and it was such a surreal day because you know the Stones, ACDC, blah blah blah. Everyone was you know it was really special. I don't even I still don't even know who's you know uh -uh, I had to suck to get on that bill, but <laughs> somehow I did. And uh, I got to meet the guys, and I met Brian Johnson, and they had just caught off stage. And I said, you didn't play Money Talks. And he said, ah, I fucking hate singing that song. And I'm like, what? He goes, ah, oh, it's too high. It's too high, I don't sing it because it's too high. <laughs> so he must, uh, it, it must have been recorded and it was a great groove and he never, he, they never play it anymore. Right, right. I actually know that Brian told you this because I watched the bonus backstage footage from the Toronto Rock SARS uh, concert DVD, and there you were talking to Brian about that very topic. What? Yes. You never saw this? What? You you saw what? You were backstage talking with Brian. Talking. No. Yes. Yes, you're backstage. You don't remember this? Uh, oh, no, because I was there. I remember it. Right. <gasps> really? Yeah. Yeah. There's a photo session like you're talking about, and then you're chatting with Brian about money talks and I think he says something like well that's a stinker to sing yeah he didn't he, was, he didn't like the song which is you know understandable because I have I mean you know all my hit songs I uh, there are songs I don't like playing so but it was really it was really this wonderful moment I got to meet him and I'm like you know I'm in heels so I'm as tall as he is <laughs> and uh, hi Brian my name's my name's cat my name's Kitty because my friends call me Kitty my name's Kitty and I played today and it's this is just a thrill to see you play, and you know, blah, blah, blah. He goes, ah, oh, Katie, <laughs> you're a fine lass. And I was like, yeah. That's awesome. And so I got a picture with him. My manager happened to be staying there. So I quickly got a picture with him, you know, click. He sends me the picture, I got it developed, and I send it to my mom. She had it framed, she puts it on the mantle. Nice. And I married an older guy. He's not that much. He doesn't look older, but I married an older guy. And, and when some f old friends would come over to my mom's house, she'd be like, they'd say, oh, is that Kathleen's new husband? <laughs> and I, <laughs> my mom's like, no, that's Brian Johnson, the lead singer of ACDC. Oh, that's awesome. What a wonderful moment. I love that. Tell us more about that special day on uh, July 30th, 2003. Give us some of that on stage or backstage ACDC dirt, if you've got any. I mean, and what was it like for you to be among these icons looking out towards a virtual sea of people? I sort of just, I think I, the nice thing was I was so burned out from being on the road. It was my first year on the road and it was every day. I hadn't had a day off, it was all new. And it was so thrown at me in a way that I just became sort of, I was sort of numb because I was so exhausted. Mm -hmm. And that was great for going into that scenario because I didn't really have time to think about that I was going to play in front of that many people and the type of exposure that was going to be. Yeah. And it was an amazing experience. Like, I kept being told this is a once in a lifetime thing. And I thought, you know, well, that's not really possible. And now I look back and I go, yes, it, it definitely was. And I got to watch ACDC from in front of the soundboard. Wow. And I'm still not entirely sure how I swung that one because no one was allowed in the pit. There's this long tunnel pit right in front of the stage. And I got to stand about 20, 30 feet in front of the soundboard. So basically the best seat in the house. Wow. And there wasn't someone throwing up on me, which was really nice. <laughs> so I, you know, and I stood there and I knew I loved the band, but it was the first time live. And, and it was just, you know, every song finishes and 
your hands are in the air, like you just can't help yourself. You know, you're just like. That day, I said to myself, this is probably going to be my own personal version of Woodstock with that many people, actually more people than there were at Woodstock. Uh, it was a historic moment and all for a good cause as Toronto needed a boost in the wake of the SARS crisis. It was, so, it was such a special day, like hanging out with the Flaming Lips and getting to watch people from side stage. Yeah. It was amazing, you know? You know, one of my favorite moments from that day was getting up the next morning and gathering all the local newspapers from the hotel and, and nearly every single bit of coverage say how ACDC blew the stones off the stage. And I mean, this was for a good cause and all. And here's the media slagging one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. But inside, I was like, yes. <laughs> and I actually got Dan Aykroyd, who hosted the day's events, to sign the front page of the Toronto Star to commemorate this massive victory for the band and for Canada. My I'm sure you know this, but my understanding is that the Stones are committed to do this gig. And, you know, they got... They got a really nice paycheck, and it was for a good cause, and everything was awesome. But apparently they sort of had signed ACDC up for it without really them, without their consent in a, in a way that was like, I think they sort of just assumed that ACDC would come and do this. And it was, a, I think they marked the gig as, we're going to play these fuckers under the table. <laughs> Uh, that's my understanding, but it could be just rumor, you know, amongst musicians. But mm -hmm. my understanding was that, you know, they had sort of they were they were happy to participate, but they'd sort of been they'd sort of been wrangled into it by the Stones, and there was a major amount of cost that they had to absorb for bringing all their stuff over and back. And mm -hmm. I don't think they had really sort of asked them. Is my you know, this is a really vague story. There's not a lot of specifics in it. No, but. no. Actually, let me just say this. I was just rereading the book ACDC, Let There Be Rock, where Malcolm tells author Susan Messino, well, we did blow them off the stage at the SARS benefit in Toronto. I know that much. So I, I, think, I think we're safe. Why don't you spill yeah, it? Yeah, we're going to play a show that is going to make everyone think that when we're done, the show is over. Yeah. And they did. And they did. And of course, a, an, another great highlight was seeing Angus and Mal join their heroes on stage, welcomed by the Stones to perform a truly awesome rendition of Rock Me Baby by B.B. King, a man who influenced both bands with his soulful vocal style and distinct guitar playing. Seeing Mal trading riffs with Keith and Ronnie and watching Angus try to upstage Jagger was true bliss for me live in the audience and i was in pure heaven watching that very moment in time that night i'll never forget it yeah yeah
rock bands, a lot of times, rock bands about the groove. It's all about that feeling you get, it's about the serotonin, it's about the, it makes you want to drive fast. But the other thing ACDC has is that they write great songs. And the worst thing in the world for me as a songwriter is to put on a song that someone's excited about and you don't know what the song's about. Worst thing in the world. With ACDC, you don't have that problem. The Jack. I know what that song's about. It's about the Jack. And we all know what the Jack is. And, you know, whole lot of Rosie. We know what that's about. It's about fucking a big, big, big girl. <laughs> and I love that. I fucking love that. You know, like, don't beat around the bush. So your direct connection to ACDC is not just playing the stars benefit with ACDC and, and the Stones, but also covering an ACDC song, which not a, it's not an easy thing to do. And so now you're among those brave enough who've taken on the challenge of covering the mighty ACDC. Is there an artist out there who's thrown their hat in the ring where upon listening you went, oh God, what were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure... You know, I'm sure my cover ver my cover version isn't a life altering experience. No, but uh, you know what? You know, you made it your own. Uh, that's what I liked about it. It's, you know, it, like I said, it's really hard to pick a song like Hell's Bells or Back in Black because the original version is so untouchable. They're too big. You can't really create the girth of that song in a cover song. You really can't. Unless you really reinvented the song in such a way that was completely out of, you know, out of context. You know, one of the most consistently worst ranked ACDC cover songs is poor Celine Dion's version of You Shook Me All Night Long. You know there's that scene in Office Space where the guy's driving to work and he's listening to rap really loud, like gangster rap, and it's all about <laughs> killing people and fucking, you know. And then the homeless guy walks towards his car and he turns down the music because right. he doesn't, you know, he's a little intimidated. <laughs> right. I kind of feel a little bit like that is Celine Dion listening to ACDC. Like, it's like, you know, when I listen to ACDC, I'm in my 88 Chevy Suburban and I have it so loud and I don't give a fuck if, you know, it's too loud. Right, right. Celine, you know, Celine's probably been given a, songs of, a, a couple songs of like, okay, you're going to Vegas, let's put some cover songs into the show. Here's some great options. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna go play some golf. And then, you know, no, I love Celine. You know what, like, what a singer. It, to be fair. Great singer. If there's anyone in the world who's got the vocal chops to cover a song like that, Celine's it. It's just, you know. I'd rather see it. I'd rather see it in a in a meathead rock bar in 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 New Jersey than I would in Las Vegas. ACDC Beyond the Thunder, as you know, is about this band and how they've influenced our culture in truly unique ways around the globe. Um, do you have a favorite example of how ACDC has done that, even outside of music? Yeah, no, no. You know who I actually I thought about this today before the interview. I was thinking about how that that what the question to what the answer to that is and how we see it. And we it's 
It's so infiltrated pop culture and music culture that we don't even realize it because it's being delivered by people who are brilliant. For example, Jack Black, brilliant comedian. I like. I will see his worst movie ever because I think he's brilliant and I he makes me laugh and I it's a good time. School of Rock. School of Rock. He's playing an SG. And uh, where do you think that comes from? That's Angus. That's Angus's influence. And and this is Jack Black reinventing that influence. And that was a kids movie. As you know, he didn't swear once in School of Rock. It was an entirely for children, young kids to watch and like rediscover and fall in love with rock and roll. And I'm sorry, but that that's his entire character. And he, I know he has lots of music. Jack Black has a ton of musical influences, but ACDC is really got to be on the top three. And it's so obvious when he's playing and doing these things that really are going to penetrate the psyche of young of young kids. And they don't even know it and they don't even know like, this came from Angus Young. No, no. And that, that's a great example. We've been trying to get Jack on the show, and I, I hope we can finally do that. But if you were to strip away that schoolboy uniform, speaking of Jack Black and wearing that uniform, which was awesome, <laughs> and, and what if you were to take away the working cap and the major stage props and so on? Angus just comes out in jeans and a T-shirt, let's say. Would it have made a difference in how ACDC connected with all of us? Oh, I don't think it would make a difference. I think at the time, like anything, you know, people stand on their own and part of what they wear and how they present themselves is, is a big part of that. And when it's completely against what is, you know, what's trend or what hasn't been done, then it, it's, it's so unique. Now, I know no one's ever asked you this question, but I'm going to throw it out there. Have you ever done the duck walk while playing your cover of Money Talks live? Oh, my God. Why would I do the duck walk while singing Money Talks? Well, because it's a tribute to Angus. Well, isn't that a tribute to Bo Diddley? Well, actually, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, sorry. Well, you know, maybe you're drinking a little bit on stage and you just decided to channel Angus or, or Chuck. One of the guys in my band does an incredible duck walk. But we don't do it during Money Talks. Oh, do we? I don't know. Do you? No, we do it during... An, I, do, I cover an outfield song, and we do it during the cover of that. Let me guess. Uh, I don't want to lose your love tonight. Josie's on a vacation far away. <laughs> so many things that I want to say. No, I like my girls a little bit <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Where are oh, we? Oh my God. Just in case you're wondering what's happening, listeners, that was a random beach bogey walking on the beach in the background of this interview without missing a beat who was just trading lines of the outfield with Kathleen Edwards. One of the 80s great one hit wonders. That was impressive. How does he know that? He knows it because he loves the outfield. <laughs> that was quite randomly awesome. Uh, since Canada is the ongoing theme here today, it's probably a good question to ask you about why ACDC loves recording in Vancouver at Brian Adams' joint alongside the great Mike Frazier, a place they've recorded more than any other in their history. So why do you think that's so? The Warehouse is a great studio and really one of the best studios in the world in terms of 
a facility in terms of equipment, in terms of it just being a world-class and sort of like the par of, of what a great recording studio is. Yeah, um, they get great sound. They get great sounds there. And it's a beautiful city to work in. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably why they picked the warehouse to go. Canada generally has a reputation of having a little bit less... You know, you see a paparazzi and you kind of go, no one, in some places people flock to it, go, who's there, who's there? In Canada, it's like, who the fuck cares? You know, get off my fucking driveway. Like, I'm trying to do something here. Get out of my way. No one cares. No one gives a shit. So I think yeah. there's a bit of that vibe in Canada where people feel a bit more comfortable. They're not going to be, ACDC will always be stalked wherever they go but i think it's a there's Bothering a little them. less stalking in canada and and i don't know why i bring this up maybe because it's because you're a female or you're a singer songwriter or because you've covered a song off acdc's razor's edge or all three but i remember when rolling stone did a cover story on Sinead o'connor back in the early 90s and she offered to give a list of the records she hated referencing ACDC's new single, Thunderstruck, specifically saying, quote, oh God, his voice is just horrendous. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe she said it at the time, so, so much so that I'm still upset about it for some reason. Um, how would you respond to that, just to make me feel better? Well, I, you know, the one thing I do know about Brian Johnson is that over the years, understandably his vocal range has really taken a hit like anybody's sure. would you know someone was saying the other day paul mccartney even has a hard time getting through a show sometimes you know it's not a, yeah. like it's a really hard thing to do it's a really intense experience singing every note bang on from start to finish if you see a lot of shots of brian he's kind of holding his his head in a little bit and he's compressing from what I, i've been told from a couple of people good sources that it's actually like it's how it's the only way he can hit some of those notes now is to really sort of put pressure on his vocal cords, just sort of like, ah! you know, and that stuff is hard to sing. It's as hard as opera. It's as hard as anything. It's hard to sing that style of vocal. So I'm sure that for some people, it's like nails on a chalkboard. But, but for most of us, it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So what's your favorite part about having such a love affair for this band and how they've influenced you as a musician? I mean, what have they given you besides the great music? To be able to stand on stage and say, you know, I'm sound checking, and I pick up my Les Paul Jr. and I turn out my AC-10 and I can play a lick from ACDC and I can just see the bar staff or anyone who's in the room when I'm sound checking go, holy shit, she's okay. <laughs> and that is like the greatest thrill in the world. Not that I can impress somebody, but that I actually really get off on that feeling. And it's like being a 15 year old in your bedroom and you're sitting there like you got the little book and you're like, okay, I gotta put my finger here, finger here, finger here. And those guys I know spend hours trying to figure out solos to stuff, trying to figure out, you know, how to play those licks. Like Back in Black. Back in Black, it's the easiest lick in the world but there's something about it that's completely amazing. It's E, D, A. Yep. Those are like the easiest chords in the world. True. How come ACDC made it like this, you play those three chords together and everyone goes. 
what the fuck is that? <laughs> yes. You know, it's, so it's true. amazing. So true. It's the X factor. So they gave you a little street cred or big balls, shall I say? Yes. My balls have really grown since I started playing ACDC licks. Oh. My balls are massive. <laughs> oh, man. Kathleen Edwards, thank you so much for getting us outdoors beachside to have a little fun in the sun and a little sunburned watching people walk around with big balls and their little speedos all while professing our love for acdc but alas we have one last question for you acdc in just one word you know what i thought about this not that i thought you would ask me this but i thought like what is a word that that sort of for me like it's a, per it's a i think it's gonna be a totally personal thing for me it's sex oh and not because it makes me want to have sex. Well, it does. But <laughs> I could give up sex if I could play. Like, I get that same feeling. Sorry, this is a lot of information. But I get that same feeling. Just that, like, that, that feeling where everything's good and everything's happy and your body is so, in, like, present when I can play an ACDC lick. There's something about it. Like, I, I could take one or the other. Actually, no, that's not true. I couldn't give up sex. But it is like that. It's that, <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's fucking sex. <laughs> and sex is great. Oh, boy. We, have, we certainly got our money's worth out of your one-word answer, for sure. But how about this? Let's play you out doing your favorite Brian Johnson impersonation from your favorite ACDC moment of all time. And that'll make for a fine ending. Play us out, Kathleen. Katie. You're a fine lass. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot Nanu Nana.